Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Warning. The material in this episode is graphic and includes descriptions of violence and discussion around suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. This is an RNZ podcast. In my heart, I was thinking, man, I want to be the president of the Mongol Mall. That's what I want to be when I get older. This is Rangi Po. And like any other kid, he had big and unexpected dreams. His friends describe him as... Friendly, smiley, probably use the word as straight up. <laughs> Direct, you know, fun, I hope. Hi, I'm Sonia Yee, and you're listening to Only Human, a podcast about the human experience in its raw and sometimes unexpected form. Oh, I like to um, enjoy myself. You know, I like people to feel comfortable and relaxed, and I like a joke or two, that's for sure. His earliest happy memory was when he had just turned five. I was at um, Kohangareo. We used to live like right next to our marae. We had like a big birthday. It was the birthday that you leave Kohang and go to primary school anyway, but I remember that pretty clearly. But his unhappy memories outweigh the good ones. I have lots of memories about being scared when I was a child. My father was very violent, uh, intimidating. He was very verbally abusive. He kind of commanded fear in people, you know, he demanded you be afraid of him. If he was angry, I would hold my breath, literally, like I'd be in my room and he'd be down the hallway and I could hear him yelling and I'd literally hold my breath. Because I was like, so like, oh man, I hope he doesn't come in. Who knows what will happen. You could say that Rangi's dad was entrepreneurial. He was a solo drug dealer with his own set of morals. Like any dad, though, he wanted more for his kids than what he had. He didn't like gangs. He didn't mind selling drugs to them, but uh, it wasn't his preference. He was kind of like the, you know, stand on your own two feet. And he didn't like the idea of people being in gangs. It was something that he impressed upon his boys. That advice only went so far. So my brothers joined the gangs. I was still young. And then the area that we lived was all kind of gang-dominated. Where I grew up, it was all just mongrel mob. It inspired me. I was probably about 11 years old. Rangi remembers sitting on his dad's knees. He had some homework to do. I had to talk about with my parents what I wanted to be when I got older. I told my dad, oh, I want to be a rapper. And in my heart, I was thinking, man, I want to be the president of the mongrel mob. That's what I want to be when I get older. I want to have a patch. Through Rangi's young eyes... It was glamorous and aspirational. It was glorified, like if you had a patch in, in the area, you know, it was like you were respected and people, you know, were afraid of you and you could do whatever you want, live however you wanted. The community that I grew up in as a whole, they idolised it, and they still do. It's like idolised and revered. Gangs uh, operate just like religions these days. People would do anything 
for for these gangs. And you you became kind of entrenched in gang life when you were around 15 or 16? 13. That's when I started fighting, drinking and wearing, you know, bandanas and, you know, hanging out with the youth gang. And then, yeah, about 15 was when I kind of took the next step. And although Rangi's dad didn't approve of gangs, something happened to facilitate his movement towards them. I think I might have just turned 14. My parents were moving away. They were moving up north and I was raised in Hawke's Bay. Rangi didn't want to go with him because it meant leaving behind his friendships in the Hawke's Bay and it also provided Rangi with a perfect opportunity to escape the one person in his life that scared him. For Rangi's dad, it also gave him the perfect out and a way of cutting the ties that would allow Rangi to make his own way into adulthood. He said to me, I left home when I was eight, so you're well overdue. He just said to me, go, pack my bag, just left to my own devices. Rangi helped his parents with a move and took the drive up north. Then he hitchhiked his way home, where life would be simpler. Or so he thought. I stayed in the Hawke's Bay living on the streets, asked people if they could sleep in their shed. Remember one time I slept in like a little garden shed and it was like filled with rubbish. That oh, was horrible. At 14 years old, he's never had to fend for himself before. It's also a vulnerable age to be out on his own. But in his mind, the streets and this new way of life are something that he always wanted. I felt free. I felt liberated. I was so scared of my dad. Like, I always used to dream I'm going to run away. But I was so scared that I thought, man, if I run away, man, he'll find me. I remember when he said that I could go, it was like I was released. I didn't have to live under the fear of my um, my dad anymore. So it was actually, to me, it was the best thing in the world. You know, this is something that's been offered to you on a plate, but how does a 14-year-old feed himself and, you know, shower? And how do you get access to what you actually need? I just started um, showering at friends' houses. So I was sleeping on couches anywhere I could. So, you know, people used to leave their freezers in, like, a, a laundry house, the old state houses, and they'd have, like, a little laundry house, but it was kind of like a separate door or room at the back. And in those laundries, they'd usually have freezers. So I, that was the first thing I started doing was, was robbing freezers for food. Then I was even selling it sometimes. Single mothers, lots of solo mothers in the area I grew up. So instead of them paying $150 for some food for the week, I'd get all their food and get $50 for it. And what did you do with the money? Mostly I just spent it on alcohol or drugs, some food, anything really. When you're in the process of doing that, how are you feeling at the time? I'm just accepting that this is my life or you're still kind of carrying around that sense of freedom or is it actually hard? It was emotionally painful. It was hard. I remember thinking like, man, this sucks. You know, I was resented my life, yeah, I'm doing this. And at first it was like, oh, this is the best thing in the world. But slowly, like, the reality began to hit, like there were nights where I didn't have anywhere to go and I was 14 years old. And I didn't have any food, no money, nothing, no family. The strange thing is, is that I, I, I never felt homeless because I always knew that if I wanted to, I could go to another city, or another town where I did have family and I could live there. It wasn't until I was about my I was about 25 and I was telling my story to someone and they said, oh, so you were like homeless? And I said, well, yeah, I guess I was because I didn't have anywhere to live. But 
you're just getting from day to day, but this is your reality. It probably feels at, at the time like a choice. It did feel like a choice. I knew that I could go to my parents, although I didn't want to go to my parents because I didn't want to live under the regime that my father used to run. It was around this time that Rangi was becoming more and more exposed to people using methamphetamine. Before his folks moved up north, he'd become aware of it and the side effects, but he didn't really understand what was happening. My brothers were using methamphetamine. One of my brothers, anyway, was arrested one day and there was about six police officers and they were all wrestling him and trying to get him and he was just going crazy. And I remember thinking, what's the matter with him? It was afterwards Dad had told me that my brother was high on meth. That was kind of the first time I ever heard about meth and he was actually warning me, saying, don't ever touch this stuff. But years later... That thought would virtually erase itself from Rangi's memory. His dad wasn't around, and not long after becoming homeless, Rangi, almost 15 years old, has moved in with one of his brothers. State houses would have these little single sheds out the back. They were kind of like garden sheds, but we always used them as a place to smoke drugs. I was sleeping in a little shed like that, and almost turning 15. My brother and his mates all in the gang would come in probably like two, three, four, five, all hours of the morning to smoke meth. That was the first time I started seeing people actually use meth in front of me. So I'd kind of have to sit up and wait for them to finish. But one morning I had woken up, someone had dropped a, a bag of meth on the ground and that was the first time I had uh, actually held it in my hands. I sold it to a friend and from there, it just became more prevalent in, in the area that more people started using it. But Rangi didn't start using straight off the bat. I was selling it for probably about six months before I even tried it. I was probably about 15 when I started smoking it with gang members. And I mean, what does it feel like when you do take meth? Oh, it feels like a surge of energy, just this rush, your euphoric feeling. Dopamine is just flooding your system. It's like, it's actually pretty incomparable to any other experience in terms of the amount of dopamine that fills your your mind or that floods your system, there's actually very few things that uh, release dopamine like methamphetamine does into your body. At first, when I started using the drug, you would really, uh, to be honest, just sit around talking and it would just make you feel good and you could just talk for two days at a table smoking meth. By the time Rarangi is 17 years old, he's fully entrenched in gang life. Sounds silly when I look back on it, because I went from one regime living in fear to another. And when I started getting involved with the gangs, I was living in fear even then of what might happen to me and fear of my future. And, and his thoughts aren't helped by the fact he's smoking meth. I was so paranoid. I used to stay awake at night thinking that people were trying to kill me. And The fact that Rangi had brothers in the mongrel mob helped him to get his foot in the door. If you have family in the gangs, your road's a little bit easier. But if you're kind of coming in and you don't have any family involved with the gang, then you, you're going to walk, walk a little bit of a harder road. You definitely have to prospect, you know, nine times out of ten, you know, and there are individuals who don't have to prospect. And that's becoming more common where you don't have to prospect these days. You know, 20 years ago it was like it was a guarantee you'd have to prospect. And prospecting means having to prove your worth. The main thing is they want to see if you listen, you're obedient, carry out anything you're told to do, you do it. That could range from theft to robbery to kidnap, drug dealing. What kind of situations would call for a kidnapping? 
you know, people owe money. It could be someone owes money for drugs. Someone's uh, kind of done something to offend someone high up in the gang. You know, let's just say, for instance, someone went around and robbed a house and they didn't realize that the house was family members of, a, of another gang or of a gang. Lots of different reasons that, that would justify it. And the way a kidnapping might be carried out could also be akin to a scene from a Hollywood movie. To kick the door down, <laughs> grab, wrestle them to the ground, you know, that, that can happen. Or it can be what they call kidnapping in the gang world is called a boot ride. That's the terminology. If you hear someone say, oh, they're going for a boot ride, it means they're being kidnapped. I expected all of that. I kind of knew what it was, and that's what I wanted at the time. You know, you don't just go from being unknown to the gang to all of a sudden prospecting. You'd start off being an associate. As an associate, you're kind of hanging around the gang, but you're not kind of a part of the gang. You start to see how that world operates. Obviously, I grew up around it. All my friends were involved with it. I mean, I can see how you definitely gained a sense of belonging, becoming part of the gangs, but did you believe at the time that you had a long-term future with them? I did, and I used to tell my aspirations to my closest friends and say to them, but I'm going to be the president one day. I'm... And that really was my purpose in life. This is what I want to do. It was God to me. It was my religion. Live, die, breathe it, eat it all day, every day. I felt like it was glamorous. It gave me a sense of belonging. You know, I used to feel like I never had a purpose until I got involved with the gangs. He was living a gangster lifestyle. When I got into my teens, I ended up going to prison. Prison, to be honest, I felt like it was it was cool. I actually enjoyed my experience in prison. I get to hang out with all my friends. I have no responsibilities. I get three meals. Yeah, there's a bit of fear. There's a bit of uh, anxiety around, you know, who's running the prison and, you know, any day things could happen. I used to tell people, you know, um, if I had females in KFC in prison, then I wouldn't want to leave. So that was then, but I... <laughs> Saying that, I was connected with gangs, and so your prison experience is different if you're with the gang, not with the gang, right? Because they protect you. Yeah, especially if the gang that you're with runs the prison, then it's obviously you feel like you own that place. And if I went to another prison, let's say, and another gang ran it, maybe perhaps it wouldn't be so. It wouldn't be the same. I could, I'd, I'd imagine. Did you? Would you say it taught you, or what did it teach you then about being a man at a time when you were, you know, your sense of identity is being shaped? Um. Well, it taught me this, I believed that, you know, a man, you just do whatever you want, don't care about anyone else, do whatever makes you feel good, stuff the world. Last one standing's the person that's right. It starts to take its effect or it has its toll. And I know they say that they're changing, but no doubt they still intimidate their members and use bully tactics and use violence to get their way in the end. No, that's just how they roll. And where I was involved, it wasn't easy just to walk away. New Zealand gangs are set up, especially the Mongol mob, they're set up with chapters. Every chapter is autonomous. Right? They have different rules. So, you know, one chapter might say, who cares if you beat your partner up and smoke meth? And another chapter will say, no, that's not, we're not going to have that here. What's one of the worst things that you probably saw that still hasn't left you even today? I would say it has a lot to do with some of the sadness that, that some of the family members go through. You know, I've seen people beg for their life and grovel because they're so afraid of what's going to happen next. And I, I remember those times, and it's a pretty sobering 
experience watching someone big for their life because they think they're going to die. It was going to take something pretty big to steer Rangi in a different direction. Over the years, he had reconnected with his childhood friend, Kenneth. We kind of both grew up involved in the gangs together, reconnected with each other. 2015. He moved to Hamilton. A father of five children, Kenneth also made his way to Hamilton. At that time, I was still involved in questionable activities. <laughs> he and Rangi ended up selling drugs together and being immersed in gang life. But not long after... He took his own life. And his partner was there. It was his two-year-old daughter that found him. But even today, Rangi carries some guilt, asking himself whether the event could have been averted if only he'd listened. You see, Ken tried to tell Rangi a week earlier that he wanted out. I was with him. They'd stopped in Kenneth's driveway and Kenneth launched into a bit of a heart-to-heart. You know, I kind of started the conversation with, oh, I'm not too sure about what I'm doing, and he didn't want to continue on with the lifestyle that we were living, the drug dealing and the gangs and things like that. Rangi's kind of dumbstruck and surprised. This wasn't like the Kenneth that Rangi knew, an introverted and reserved guy who never really shared much about his thoughts and feelings. It was really strange for him to be sharing with me like his heart, saying, man, I, I want a different life, and I don't want my kids to grow up like this. He asked me if I could help him to get off the drugs and to change. And Rangi was hearing, but he wasn't really listening. I was so focused on trying to live this baller gangster lifestyle, like wanted a house and you know in the hills and uh, with a pool. And I remember just thinking, like, yeah, one day, bro, you know, we change and 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 give up this lifestyle. I didn't know that, you know, a week and a half later, he would take his own life. I ain't too proud to tell you that I cry sometimes. I cry sometimes about it. Because people ain't perfect and we all know better. So we searching for a purpose without them. Three, six months after that happened, I was just filled with grief, like in guilt, because I felt like, you know, here it was, he was asking me for help. I just, just wasn't interested. I remember going round his house the day before Christmas Eve, checking all his cupboards. And so that was a really, really big turning point for me. I mean, it messed with my, um, my, my mind. Store a couple hundred on some groceries. The look on his face when he popped open that book, I come through. But two days later, he got jacked by some fools trying to call me up. But I was out hanging with other dudes. By the time I checked my phone, the police already done been through a gang-related hit. Um, I wrote that song uh, probably about, yeah, three and a half, four years ago. Not long after Kenneth committed suicide, Rangi finally found the courage to leave the mongrel mob. And I didn't just walk away, it didn't happen just like that. It was actually a miracle, actually. I had left the town and I was in, in another city. I um, became a Christian going to this church and my best friend came to see me and started to tell me that he wanted to change and he wanted to get off the drugs, so I told him to come to church. This friend of Rangi's ended up coming to church. He wanted to get married, and his dad, the president of another mongrel mob chapter, ended up coming along to the wedding. Rangi had been asked to be best man. It's a Sunday morning. Rangi heads outside, coming face to face with his friend's dad. 
And this guy still is the, the president today. Most likely he will die the president. I haven't seen him for two or three years. I still hadn't sorted out the rubbish, I guess, that came with me leaving. All he said to me was, Rangi, I don't care about anything that happened. Forget it all. I'm just happy that my son has got a new life. His son had his own issues. He was in and out of the mental health psych ward twice before he was 16. Lots of drug abuse. Today, he's a qualified plumber, owns his own business. His dad's happy about that. Today, Rangi is 29 years old and lives in Napier. He has a baby daughter. He's a motivational speaker and a pastor of his church. And he's committed to making a difference. It wasn't the last chapter of the story, and I used to look at it like it was. For a long time, I, I spent my time blaming, blaming people for anything that went wrong in my life. I was a victim of, of everything. Someone said to me, if things are going to change in your life, you're going to have to make the first choice. Obviously, it took a lot of courage for you to make this change, but also in the same way, it's, it's actually like flipping your entire way of thinking and being, and that's not easy for anyone to do. It's actually relearning, and so that's the thing, right? I know a lot of people who left gangs, stopped drugs, stopped drinking, but they still perhaps might do things that are very gang-like. They still might do the bullying and the violence and the intimidation. And It's one thing just to leave the gang, but it's another thing to change the way you think in terms of, like, you know, violence is okay. If I don't get my way, then I'll just intimidate. You know, there are some things that were so ingrained as a, as a kid and, you know, every now and then I actively have to tell myself, oh, I'm not going to do that or I'm not going to act in that way or I'm not going to respond in that way. You get better at it as you go. When you're standing up in front of a group of, you know, school kids, you're doing your kind of motivational talks, and these are young people who are or who have come from very similar backgrounds to you. Is that empowering? It doesn't empower me or anything. I don't feel like I'm empowered. I feel a sense of satisfaction to know that I can do something that could possibly help one person, even one person. I'm happy with that. And plant seeds, you never know when one day they might think back and think about that story and, and say, you know what, I remember this guy talking and from there begin formulating their own ideas about how they want to change. Rangi is far removed from the life he once dreamed of. So what does he dream about now and for the future? I guess today for me, my dream really is just to, to help, uh, help this community. Help the, help the people here in, in, in the city carry out my work here on this planet until I'm gone. <laughs> You've been listening to Only Human, and I'm your host and producer, Sonia Yee. The sound engineer was Phil Benge, and the executive producer for the series and podcast team is Tim Watkin. If you need help or have concerns around depression, suicide or anxiety, free call or text 1737 anytime for support from a trained counsellor or call 0800 Lifeline. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.